0: Okay. Hi and welcome everybody. My name is Uli Sedelmay. I'm an associate professor in the international relations department here at the LSE and I'm also the course director of one of the courses here at the summer school and I happen to be the program director for the IR section of the summer school. This evening I have the particular pleasure of introducing um, Dr. Robert Falkner, who is also in the International Relations Department. Robert also has many associations with the summer school. He is not only the course director of one course, he also used to be program director for IR, so he was my predecessor actually the director before me, yeah. and the director of the summer school. So many connections that Robert had and still has with the summer school, but this evening he's here as one of the world leading experts on international environmental policy, uh, writing on as diverse polis, uh, areas as, as uh, biosafety, climate change, nanotechnology. Um, but I'm not going to spend more time introducing him. Over to you, Robert.
1: Thank you very much, Uli. Thank you. Uh, great pleasure to be here. I'm going to just move over here, because I think I need to get the PowerPoint slides going. But otherwise, I'm going to move around, if you allow me, because I think you've had a long day, and I, I need to keep you all engaged. Uh, and I may even pick some of you to answer some of the questions. So leave now, if you, if you don't want to be called up. Richard, you're staying, of course. <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you. Thank you for the introduction, Uli. Um, It was suggested that I talk about the earth in crisis. It's a bit of a mouthful, that title. I'm going to touch on climate change, uh, climate diplomacy. It's been labeled, this talk, the failure of climate diplomacy. And I, I shall explain in a moment why that is perhaps the apt title. So I think I should explain a little bit about what it is I want to do. I can't talk about the whole subject of climate change. I'm not going to touch too much on the science of it or the economics of it. There's a whole debate about technology and climate change. I'm I'm going to cite that uh, too. My focus is quite narrowly on the international politics of climate change and how we have gone about trying to resolve that problem through multilateral agreements. Not much of a secret to say that, well, so far we've broadly failed. And so the two questions I want to address today are, firstly, why is it that given that we've got a global challenge ahead of us that we all understand is urgent and we have a pretty good knowledge basis about climate change, we know the problem is there, it is happening, global warming is happening and will cause huge problems, why have we failed to address it through some form of globally coordinated action. Is this indeed the biggest case of global collective action failure that we face? And I'm going to try and answer that one, giving reasons why that is so, why perhaps necessarily climate diplomacy is bound to fail. The second question then will hopefully lead over to something more optimistic and positive, which is, So where does power reside in the international system? Who's got the power to deal with climate change? I don't want to leave it there just, you know, leaving you sitting there thinking, OK, climate diplomacy isn't working. We might as well go home and not bother any longer. I want to try and identify who's got the power to deal with that crisis. And we're going to have another round of climate negotiations next year, in 2015. In Paris, there will be another big UN climate conference the biggest climate conference since the last one, the the last big one in Copenhagen 2009, and it'll be interesting to ask who in that conference might be able to fix the problem, get us to an agreement, or indeed a global solution. So I want to address that question of power, of political agency, and of course of global governance. Who can uh, fix those things at the global level? Just to illustrate what I mean by that, let me switch over to this first slide. So who's got the power? Who am I thinking of here? Is it, as some people would expect, the UN, the international community, the collective of, uh, collective of nations? Sometimes you find them sitting here behind podiums. You can probably barely make out who that is. It doesn't really matter. It's a UN Secretariat in this case. I think it's, it's Ban Ki-moon sitting here in the center. Are they the relevant political agency that should act? Is it perhaps the world's leaders President Obama, in this case, clearly feeling the heat already, who has now announced that he is going to regulate coal-fired power stations as a first step towards addressing problems. Should we expect him to take the lead? We all know his predecessor didn't exactly take leadership, so perhaps with a new president and now in his second period uh, in, in, in office, we might get some more action, should we look to him. But, of course, you all know the U.S. is no longer the biggest Emitter. It is now China. So perhaps President Li Jinping should be the one we're looking to. Indeed, many think that China holds the solution in its hand because, of course, China's emissions are fast rising and uh, will soon outpace everyone and, indeed, all the other leading powers. Perhaps it's business. Um, perhaps it's no politics. Perhaps it's business leaders like, well, Richard Branson. Um, I needed to find a picture basically the holding the earth in, in the hand that's why I picked him but he's also an interesting charismatic leader Richard Branson runs various businesses from airplane, uh, airplanes well it's, it's mostly trains in the UK now that he's running but also other uh, businesses he wants us to travel into space he's one of those guys who's quite innovative and he's very keen to push the, the issue of climate change to the forefront of business he's been very active in that area but there may be others. What about the sort of anonymous scientists, the engineers who come up with new solutions? Perhaps it's not business, perhaps it's what happens in the labs of, of various universities. Here is one proposal to send water vapor into, uh, into the air to create more cloud cover so as to cool the atmosphere. Perhaps we just need a little fix, a technological fix Some scientists talk about sucking carbon dioxide out of the air. Perhaps that will do it. Then we can all sit back, relax, and enjoy. Perhaps it is campaigners. Should we perhaps not worry about states and businesses? Perhaps it's all down to those people with, well, designer stubbles and and mean-looking expressions. Dr. Robert Ford, Oh no, that's not me. Uh, That's a that's a mistake. Um, Perhaps perhaps it's the people who really move things in politics because they get out on the streets rather than attend lectures. Perhaps the people who really put their lives at stake think of Greenpeace uh, throwing itself, the activists throwing themselves in front of those uh, ships that uh, navigate the Arctic now in search for new fossil fuels. Or it is you guys, consumers. Perhaps you just need to make the right choice when you replace your light bulb. Which one do you go for? Which mobile phone do you use? How often do you use it? How many fridges do you have? A fridge and a wine cooler? Some of my colleagues at the LSE, they need wine coolers in their offices. How many, <laughs> of, those, how many of those decisions do you take in your life? Perhaps it's down to that level where power resides. Let me leave that open for now and let me perhaps investigate the problem a bit more I'll come back to that before we go any further I've got a few slides on the science and the political economy of climate change so bear with me for now, I'm going to come back to the juicier political bit Um, let me just sort of map out the problem, just so that we're on the same uh, plane there, so that we all have the relevant facts in hand, what kind of problem are we talking about, why is that collective action uh, so difficult to organize. Let me start with some of those things that we know about. First of all, we do know, and there's very strong evidence, that the global climate has changed, and it has changed over the last 150 years, more or less. So we're talking about you know, sort of the middle of the 19th century when industrialization really kicked off. We know that the global climate has changed. These are average figures, and you can see here that the climate has particularly picked off in the 20th century and particularly since Second World War. And of course this last period here is the period of globalization when not just the industrialized countries but increasingly other populist societies have started to industrialize on a grand scale and they have contributed to that global warming trend. If you are doubtful about the trend and if you uh, I would like to point out that there's, of course, a lot of fluctuation and variation, natural variation. Of course there is. That's why it's probably better to talk about decade-long averages. And you can see here, if you look at different decade-long averages, there has clearly been a step change over this time. Now, the magnitude, well, it's depending on where you live. Some of us on this island might think a bit of warming wouldn't go amiss. Uh, we're talking about, a, roughly speaking, one degree Celsius over the entire period of industrialization since the mid-19th century, about 0.74 <laughs> degrees Celsius in the 20th century alone, and the trend keeps carrying on. By the way, if you look at that last bit of the graph here, just since 2000, there has been a bit of a sort of a leveling off. i not sure whether you can see that. Um, There's been some controversy recently around this question of whether the global warming trend is coming to an end. Two things on that. I'll I'll, I'll leave it at that. First of all, we need to think not in terms of a few years, we need to think in terms of long-term trends. So a few years trend doesn't tell us anything as yet about the long-term trend. But the second most important point that's come out of the last intergovernmental panel on climate change report is What's happening here is that global warming, on average, may have slowed down. But we're still experiencing a greenhouse effect. The underlying physics of what's going on, the fact that we are storing heat from the uh, from the sun on Earth, that hasn't gone away. The greenhouse effect is still working. The problem is, in the last few years, that heat that we're absorbing and storing has gone somewhere, but not into the global atmosphere. And what most scientists are now, now suggesting is that it may be going into the deep oceans. And there is now good empirical evidence that shows that instead of heating up the atmosphere ever further, we are starting to heat up the oceans. That heat is therefore helping to cool. I think it may be a microphone problem. I need to move this down a bit. Okay. So that heat absorption is helping us in the sense that it's slowing down global warming on the atmosphere, in the atmosphere and on the surface temperature but it is storing our problems for the future that energy will be released from the oceans in the future so what we're seeing here is not in any way a solution if anything we're storing our problems for the future how has it come to this? Well, you all know it's down to CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere that work like a greenhouse. We have here variations of CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere depicted over hundreds of thousands of years, going back to at least 800,000 years. This has been measured quite reliably by digging in the ice core in Antarctica. You can drill down and layer after layer. You can uh, look at the... uh, content of carbon in the air bubbles trapped in the ice and more recently it's been measured on Hawaii uh, since 1958 when we've measured it directly in the air. So we have a good understanding of the change in CO2 in the atmosphere. And if you look at this here, since, well I I can't quite show it to you because of the, the time compression, but since 1850 we have left this area of natural variation which fluctuated between just around 200 to 250 ppm parts per million And we have gone up to now well over 400 parts per million. And this is by any measure the largest ever atmospheric experiment that we have run with the Earth. And we're still piling on more and more CO2. We have already a stock of CO2 in the atmosphere. And we have an additional flow of 2 ppm, 2 ppm every year that we're adding to that. And so we're currently rising well above that level and there's no stopping that trend. And that's the root cause of the problem. And we need to understand just the magnitude of the problem. Most scientists say we need to bring these concentrations back down to this level in the medium term so that we can prevent a runaway global warming scenario. So the challenge is we've got a stock of CO2 accumulated and we're adding flow. It's a bit like your Sunday bath. It's nearly full and you just keep the tap on. You can work out the results of that at some point. That's the challenge. That's what we're facing. Who's caused the problem, or who is causing it at the moment? Um, This is a map, rescaled according to the size of the emissions that individual countries have contributed, or contributing at the moment. This is actually a map of current CO2 emissions, where the countries have been adjusted according to their emissions. Well, you can see who's not doing it. That's very evident. Africa and Latin America, to some extent Australia too, and certain parts of Southeast Asia, are not really contributing to the problem. Not massively, at least. Um, I should explain, this is CO2 emissions. So we're not looking about at other greenhouse gases. So methane, particularly from the degradation of... Uh, forests and so on. So Brazil's contribution or Indonesia's contribution would be much higher if we looked at, for example, deforestation. But let's concentrate on CO2s. They make up at least two-thirds of the problem. So let's focus on CO2s. Okay, so who are the countries who need to cut back? Well, evidently, the United States, Europe, and it's particularly China and increasingly India. Those are the big emitters in, in the order of China, US, EU, uh, India and Russia. Those are the five big polluters, the P5. We should give them a UN status. Uh, P5, permanent five in the Security Council. There's also P5 for polluters, five. Those people need, those countries need to act. Ah. Some of you, anyone from China here? From India? Right? Do you like this picture? <coughs> Do you like your country to be represented in in, in that sort of massive size? Would you prefer a different picture? Yes, please. Per capita, capita, I haven't got that. That would go down really well for India, because it would almost disappear from the map. Not for China anymore. China's per capita emissions are now approaching those of most European countries, and in some cases, depending on where in Europe you look, are now surpassing European levels. Per capita ones are still good for most other developing countries. Now, I'm thinking here of historical responsibility. Remember, this is a stock and the flow problem. The reason why we're at this point where global warming is getting out of control is because of what happened in the past. So let's look at historical responsibility. And this is what it looks like. Okay, anyone from the United States? Mm-hmm. Don't need to, to self identify right now. Um, don't worry. Um, I might have, have picked the European Union as well, because it is by and large a European and a North American problem, if you look at it in historical terms, right? Latin America, Africa and, well, yes, Asia, yes. China in particular, because China's emissions are now so big that even in historical terms, they are coming up on the scale. But on the whole, it's a North Atlantic problem. And that, of course, is the history of industrialization since the middle of the 19th century. So depending on what measure you like, in historical terms, those are the countries that need to act first. However, because it's a stock and flow problem, we do need to stop further growth in emissions in those countries, in the emerging economies. So the political problem is, it's almost all down now to China, India, Brazil, Indonesia, the populous countries that are seeing emissions rising in the future. Because emissions have started to level off in the US and in the European Union, and they're likely to see emissions falling further. Yeah, they could try harder, but the political problem is we need to now convince the emerging markets to go easy on emissions. But they're still developing, they're still growing, and for that reason, this is going to be politically explosive. Well, what are we going to experience over the course of the 21st century? Clearly, the warming is uh, hard to predict. That's where the difficulty lies in in all these scientific models. I've given you two predictions from the latest report of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. This is based on two different climate models. They have slightly awkward acronyms RCP-26. Sounds a bit like a Star Wars uh, robot. RCP-85. If If you want to delve into that, go to the IPCC website. There's good 1,000 pages of scientific reports to be read on that topic. And here you can see two predictions, basically, depending on what sort of future emissions path we're going to be on and how the Earth is going to react to this. So there's a lot of uncertainty in this. But we know one thing. In the most optimistic scenario, the warming will be in the range of 1 to 2 degrees over the course of the century. And in the most pessimistic scenario, the warming will be in the range of between 4 and 7 percent but you can also see there's going to be quite considerable regional variation. All right. So depending on where you live, you will see not just 4 and 5, and many scientists say 4 and 5 is not safe. We will see possibly seven, eight, nine, ten 10 degrees warming if we cannot control the current processes and if the kind of feedback mechanisms in the global atmosphere add to our problems. The challenge is therefore to stay to something like this scenario. Two degrees. We have agreed internationally in the UN framework that two degrees is what we want to stick to by the 21st century. There's an international agreement on that. Thumbs up, right? Okay. The international community has said that this is what we're going to stick to. question is, are we on course to get there? Not quite sure. I'll come back to that. What does this mean? Well, this is as yet speculative. It could still work out differently. But we have already seen some of the effects of the warming that has happened. And we're still within a one degree range within one century. This is what's happened in the Arctic Sea. These two pictures were taken in September, so the same month, but at different times. These are satellite pictures. And they show the ice cover in 1979 and again in 2007 and I think the pictures speak pretty much for themselves that trend was not by the way just a a fluke result in 2007 that's been a steady result of course the Arctic ice expands in winter and, and contracts in the summer the warming waters that come up during the summer melt the ice and then during the winter it expands again but usually it does so with a fairly predictable pattern there's a bit of variation but that level of variation, most scientists agree is unexpected and can only be explained with reference to the little warming that has happened so far 1 degree Celsius has produced this and of course we all know what happens when the ice cap melts it will lead to a rise in sea levels And here you have a prediction, the latest prediction, about where we're going to end up depending on the different climate models and climate scenarios over the course of this century. So we might end up with overall average levels of seas, of the oceans rising by around 0.2 meters. Again, there'll be regional variation. It'll vary depending on where you live, but it could go as far as one meter by the end of this century. One meter. most developed economies will probably be able to cope. They may just have to build higher uh, flood barriers or dams. But just to illustrate the economic costs of that, this is the east coast of the United States and in red you see all the areas that will be flooded if it comes to uh, a sea level rise of one meter. And of course these are some of the most densely populated urban areas. These are harbors. These are industrial areas. This is going to uh, be very very costly indeed um, I could have shown you Florida uh, perhaps economically less important than the east coast but much more of Florida will disappear alright that's a developed world so far so good you could say we will be able to cope, we'll just apply the Dutch approach, we'll just raise the dams and, and try and cope with that they've been very good at it I mean, much of their land is below sea level anyway perish the thought what might happen there but I think they will cope the key difference is they have the resources they have the, the economic wealth to cope the main problems I think will occur in the south, in the global south and you see here depicted some of the hot spots of global warming in developing worlds, so we will see huge pressure on freshwater resources particularly in areas where there's already pressure on such resources we will see much more of the disasters we've seen in the Caribbean. Hurricanes, uh, violent storms, also in Southeast Asia, very populous areas living near the coast. We will see, perhaps, climate-induced, environmentally-induced migration patterns where people have to flee, move away from arid territories towards countries where they can farm in a sustainable way. And so there will be lots of hotspots, And if you overlay this map onto a map produced by the Pentagon or the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom of where they expect future security risks to arise, then there's a canny resemblance between the two maps. All the climate hotspots here in North Africa, uh, South Asia, Middle East, to some extent, Southeast Asia, but also here, are very much in the areas that most people expect to be sources of future instability and insecurity, which is why people now talk about climate disruption and insecurity as the main threat coming from this. And that, I think, explains why we need to act. Okay. So far in terms of the problem, so we need to be on the same page on that and we can come back to some of these facts. What's happened so far? What have we done to address the problem? Does anyone know when the first international conference on climate change took place? The first ever. How long have we been debating that topic at the international level? Any guesses? Yeah? That was the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference, a uh, uh, treaty which was agreed in 1992. That wasn't the first conference. It was the first treaty, you're right on that. 1972? Uh, who said that? Which one was that?
2: Uh, it was the.
3: Well, ah, yeah.
1: you're right. The Stockholm Conference, the first UN Environment Conference. But it didn't address climate change as such, <laughs> as yet. There, there was some discussion around global warming but it wasn't really properly addressed so the first UN conference was in 79 so in between those two dates, so we've been discussing it at least since 79 and we then took just under 13 years good standard by diplomatic uh, uh, levels Uh, it took just under 13 years to then agree, as you suggested the UNFCCC at the Rio conference Huge success. Why? Because it's universally accepted. All countries that matter in this debate have ratified it. China and the United States. Russia and India. Mm. They've all ratified it. And they've committed in this treaty to work towards the stabilisation of climate as the normative commitment. So we have universal agreement on climate stabilisation. Okay, job done. Problem was the U.S. and some other states rejected binding targets. Quite how we would stabilize the climate was left unresolved, and that's what led to the Kyoto Protocol 97. For the first time, we agreed legally binding emission reduction targets, but the emerging economies, developing countries, were exempted from those, and the United States chose not to be bound it. In fact, they withdrew the signature from that treaty. So it didn't quite capture enough of the emissions. This was legally binding, but not universal. The UNFCCC was universal, but not legally binding. That's in a sense just of the the holy grail of international climate diplomacy, to get everyone on board with legally binding agreements. It was then agreed that we would negotiate a successor agreement to the Kyoto Protocol, the so-called Copenhagen Accord. 2009, big conference in Copenhagen, freezing cold, Delegates, protesters, all locked out of, of the main conference hall. Nobody could get in. Major disaster. Of the conference was badly organised, but tens of thousands of people were there trying to work out a deal, and we got close to it. We got close to it in the sense that a an accord, a political agreement, was signed. Negotiated in small groups. There was Obama. There were Chinese and Indian leaders in the room, uh, working on a small deal, and that was agreed. It wasn't legally binding in the end, but it committed all the major emitters to make pledges to reduce emissions. Ah, you will say, pledges, not commitments, voluntary contributions rather than enforceable targets. That's the key crux here. We have, in a sense, moved away from this structure, kind of legal basis for international governments towards a political agreement a pledge and review process and we're now in that process and we're going to have another conference there's an annual conference by the way climate negotiators meet every year in December Um, and in Paris will be the final conference that is supposed to conclude negotiations on a post Kyoto climate treaty we have the agreement from all the major emitters to do that and there's now urgent work going on to get to that agreement but it's unclear what the nature of the agreement will be. They have promised us an agreement that is either a protocol or a legal agreement or an instrument with legal force. Some kind of diplomatic language has been put in that uh, negotiation document which will no doubt give some kind of exit uh, option for some of the countries. Will it be commitments or, as the language now suggests, contributions, countries will make contributions to the collective effort? who will monitor those contributions how will we compare them there is talk about differentiation so the diplomatic machinery is in place at the moment working on this but it's far from clear how we will ever get to what we need which is a firm tough and and comprehensive agreement and if you look at this 20 odd years of negotiations what we have done is come in full circle all the way back a situation where all the major committers have basically committed to negotiating a global climate treaty. All right. We have not got any more on the table right now. And that's why many people would call this an abject case of failure. Multilateral diplomacy, it seems, has failed and that's why we need to think of uh, a different solution. All right. What's the underlying problem. Then. Robert, the question. Sorry, question? Yes, please. Yeah, um,
0: it
4: seems like everything's going according to your talk so far with uh, targets, the binding targets. To one other approach be to go into efficiency standards instead? Okay, so the suggestion
3: was
1: I'll repeat the question. Instead of going for targets, couldn't we set emi- efficiency standards? So, efficiency standards for Energy use or... or,
4: or, Yeah,
1: Yeah, you could do that. Um, It's been suggested by particularly emerging economies that instead of targets for emissions, that we go for economy-wide so-called carbon intensity targets, which is similar to your idea, which would simply mean that you would have an average efficiency standard across the economy and then a country would commit to that Why is it that perhaps countries like China and India would prefer that to absolute targets? Well, think about it. If you have an efficiency standard, you reach a certain technological level that you need to to stick within that standard. But then the absolute consumption or emissions are dependent on the underlying consumption of, of the good that you are trying to regulate. You, you could have an intensity or efficiency standard, but if your economy grows rapidly, your absolute emissions, of course, shoot up nevertheless. So it would work from an economic perspective, because countries would feel more comfortable with that, but from an environmental perspective, we would still have, particularly in the emerging economies, runaway emissions. And that's the challenge. I'll come back to that at the end. We, we could pick that up in the discussion. So what's the underlying problem? Why have we failed? Is it just the diplomats that are not doing their job? Do we not just try one more time? Should we not all, here in this room, I I presume you're keen to do something about this, correct me if, if not, should we all go to Paris next year? Who wouldn't want to stand outside the conference hall? Unfortunately, it'll be outside Paris in some, I don't know, industrial hall It's going to be quite unattractive. But, you know, nevertheless, trip to Paris. Should we stand outside, protest, put pressure on governments? Is it a case of one more push, one more heave? Have we just not tried hard enough in diplomacy? I'm going to make three arguments about why perhaps this whole route has failed and why there's a good reason that this cannot solve the problem. I'm not going to argue that diplomacy is a waste of time. I'm simply going to say that we have perhaps approached this from the wrong perspective. We have assumed that the global climate problem is akin to another environmental problem like ozone layer depletion or um, air pollution where all it takes is a global agreement between countries and then they go and implement the agreement. I think we need to think about this the other way around. Let me explain why I think that's the case and then we can talk about the alternative. The reasons are threefold. I'm going to talk about these in a moment. It's down to complexity, the issue complexity of what we're dealing with here. It's down to uncertainty, but not scientific. I would say it's down to economic uncertainty, and it's down to the diversity of interests involved. Those are the three main reasons why it's failing. Let me start with the first one, issue complexity. To reduce emissions and to stabilize the global climate, what is it we need to do? In essence, the problem is about fossil fuels. So that's about two-thirds of the problem. The rest is about forests and agriculture. Okay, I I grant you we need to deal with that, but let's focus on the two-thirds of the problem because that gives us the biggest purchase. What do we need to do? We need to get more or less all the fossil fuel energy sources out of the industrial system Or at least we need to capture all the carbon emissions from fossil fuel burning and then store them somewhere. That's a difficult one. Uh, I'll park that for the moment. The idea is that we need to decarbonize the global economy by the middle of this century, more or less. So that means we need a massive global energy transition away from gas, oil, and particularly coal, towards wind, solar, biofuels, um, and other forms of electricity, renewable energy. Can we do it? Well, the technologies exist, surprisingly, perhaps. We have most of the technologies already in play. We need to scale them up. But the problem is, how do you manufacture an energy transition on a scale like that, which is to get Fossil fuels out of energy production, out of transport, out of industrial production, out of domestic and commercial heatings, out of buildings, out of air travel, sea travel, and so on. By the way, how did we get into fossil fuel energy? That was the last major energy transition that we've manufactured. Was there ever a conference back in the 18th century where all the nations came together and said, okay, guys, we're going to abandon all the old energy technologies, we're going to switch over to Coal and gas. Sorry, I'll just carry on with that thought. We didn't do this in a planned way. It came about through incremental decisions by various different actors. And that's the challenge. We're going to deal with an energy transition that is so complex to manufacture or to negotiate that it will require almost every actor in that entire industrial system, all the way down to consumers producers, consumers, investors and regulators to do something about this and so the the key challenge is in other words diplomacy and the idea of creating a single treaty simply cannot produce that result it can contribute to it it can provide a framework it can set the level of ambition and we desperately need a level of ambition here that's relatively high but diplomacy cannot force that change so the problem becomes one of getting countries to do that transition voluntarily, almost voluntarily from the bottom up you need a domestic consensus and so rather than negotiate treaties that are then forced down the throat of countries we need a treaty that sums up the willingness the political will and social will at the bottom of societies which is then amalgamated and and put into a collective effort so the sequencing of this has to change slightly the second point is about uncertainty. I don't think scientific uncertainty is any longer the problem. Okay, it may be in some parts of the world where there are a lot of climate skeptics still arguing over climate science. Have you noticed where these countries are? They tend to be in the Anglo-Saxon world, particularly the UK, the United States, Canada, Australia. Somebody, a friend of mine, recently uh, observed that all climate skeptics seem to be. Uh, pale and male and of a certain background. It tends to be slightly older gentlemen of a certain political persuasion. We can have an argument about climate science, about particularly the predictions for the future, but we understand global warming and how it's come about pretty much. Most countries, most negotiators, most political leaders accept climate science. There's no disagreement over this between the United States and China. That's the interesting bit. It's not scientific uncertainty, it's the economic uncertainty. Even if you agree with climate science, you still need to work out whether you want to take costly actions that will impact on your economic well-being now in order for some unspecified and uncertain environmental and economic gain in the future. You need to balance those two things and predicting how your economy will be affected by the action you take now and how you will benefit from climate action in the future. It's very difficult to do. It's very uncertain. Of course, free riding is the best option here. Let the others go first. You will reap the benefits anyway because whatever you do will have an effect on all. And so, countries that face economic uncertainty of that magnitude, what should they do when it comes to negotiations? They should keep the agreement flexible. And that's why we know this from other cases in diplomatic history. When countries negotiate under the veil of economic uncertainty, they will choose treaties and outcomes which tend to be flexible, i.e. not legally binding. One good reason why we are likely ever to see a legally binding climate treaty unless we can resolve that economic uncertainty. And that brings me to the last point, which is the underlying interest of China has now committed to climate action, The last five-year plan has some very impressive work in it. And I think if you look at air pollution in Shanghai and Beijing, these countries want, China, India and others, want to do something about fossil fuels. But China also has some of the largest reserves of coal, right? So they would also want to carry on burning as much of it, as long as it is cheaply available. There's no particular desire in China's case to to take urgent action now, particularly not given that the historical responsibility lies elsewhere. The United States has now also declared its willingness to come into a global agreement, but given its uncertain economic future, pressing economic competition from China and emerging markets, again, the temptation will be to delay action. And domestically, I don't think there's much willingness in the U.S. to sign up to something legally binding. The European Union is perhaps the only major emitter left wanting a legal agreement but then the economy doesn't look so rosy anymore in the European Union and there are new member states that mm, aren't exactly pushing in the same direction. The only countries that are willing and wanting a legally binding treaty that's tough are developing countries because they will be the victims of climate change. But they have neither caused the problem nor do they have the power to do something about it. And so I, I submit to you, for those three reasons alone, and we don't need to say any more about other reasons, it is likely that the Paris Agreement will be a political agreement, but not a legally binding agreement. We need an agreement, and there will be one. Heads of states don't like leaving a conference without agreement, but it will not be of the kind that will work. So let me come back, and with that, I want to conclude. Who's got the power? to do something about this you know the initial slide all these heads that seem important who's got the power how will we do something about this diplomacy will play a role and international relations will still contribute something we need diplomacy to create a framework of discussion we need some international treaty where we can compare efforts but the efforts will be mostly voluntary and bottom up So we need, in a sense, an infrastructure for comparing these pledges. We need monitoring, reporting, verification systems. The UN will have to deliver, and the negotiations are focusing on. We will also need pressure. If you don't have a UN forum, the pledges may not be very, well, ambitious, so, you need a forum, a public forum. You need the moral force of world society working on the states. For that reason, we need the annual conference of the parties. Absolutely. But it will not push states into action, certainly not the major emitters. What we will therefore end up with is something much more akin to this. And apologies, this is a little bit blurry now, and perhaps not very easy to, to, um, to follow we will end up with a kind of a, a multi-level and multi-actor governance field. This is an attempt by two authors to depict all sorts of governance institutions that deal with environment and climate change. So here at the top uh, are the various international treaties and organizations. The OECD and others focus on states and what they do. Here at the bottom are what corporations do. There are various treaties and organizations. The World Business Council on Climate on, on uh, Sustainable Development Um, the ICC, ICC, the International Chamber of Commerce. Here are what NGOs are doing, the Serious Principles on Responsible Investment, um, uh, various others. And in between are those hybrid governance mechanisms where these actors come together, creating institutions like the Global Reporting Initiatives, a mechanism to inform investors about the environmental exposure that companies have. These institutions will work at different levels involving different actors. They will respond to local, regional or national interests and they will use governance levers, power levers that exist in the global economy, in global civil society. So one interesting network now is the network of investors that is trying to force transparency through the global supply chain, forcing companies to disclose how much carbon they emit so that investors can shift away from high-carbon to low-carbon sectors. Okay, hasn't yet produced tangible results in the form of emission reductions. We can't measure it yet. But it's going to give us a lever that no international treaty can do. Because once pension funds start shifting their investments over to low-carbon sectors, that may speak with a much louder voice than any international treaty. I'm not saying any of this will fix the problem. What I'm saying is that And this is my final point. Power doesn't exist in this field, in global climate governance, in the way we think about it in international relations. There isn't a single actor, a state, an international organization, one company that has decisive power in the traditional sense. Power has become much more diffuse and has spread throughout a social and economic network that I'm trying to depict here. Power is vested in lots and lots of actors. It is what uh, Mo- Moises Naim in his book from last year talks about when he calls it the phenomenon of the end of power. And it's not quite the end of power, it's the diffusion of power. And you need to re-aggregate those different sources of power. You need to bundle them together again to get meaningful global action. That's the challenge of climate change, which is to create effective coalitions of actors that have sufficient resources of power to make a difference in this field. It is not states per se. It is not the UN. It is new actor coalitions, and that's where I see much of the hope. So in a way, my plea is to all of you to realize where power resides. Become a diplomat by any means. If you think you want to change the world, you can do great things. You could also go into business. You could go into academia. Well, I'm not sure whether we have any effect. Uli might know more about that. Um, But you can do things at every level. The point is you need to try, and that's what has been missing so far. So with that, thank you very much, and I look forward to challenging questions for all of you. Thank you.
0: Okay, thank you very much, Robert. We can open up um, for questions. If you identify yourself, then somebody with a microphone will come and give you a microphone, and you can start speaking. Let's start here.
5: In the beginning, you talked about how uh, President Obama could take a first step, and you briefly referred back to George W. Bush. Now, we know that George W. Bush administration uh, spent their considerable time uh, denying that climate change is happening altogether. And with him, there are lots of people who, both in the business field and in the scientific realm, who uh, completely deny that climate change is ever happening. Now I. I'm an ardent believer that global warming is happening. And I don't need to read thousands of documents or go to the IPCC website. I, just, I can feel the heat when I walk <laughs> up in my country, in New Delhi, or I can feel the heat when I can turn on my television and see hundreds of news channels saying that this is the hottest year. And recently, we had uh, New Delhi had crossed the 47 degrees Celsius mark. So I believe in that, but what if we are on the wrong side of the debate? What if the Earth has a, a natural cyclical cycle of uh, heating up and then cooling it down? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Okay, all right. Um, I, I think the question of climate science is critical, as you rightly identified, because there are powerful forces... I think I'm going to move this out of the way. Um, powerful forces in politics, in business, that deny the existence of global warming. And as you say, rightly say, it may be that there will be some... Future uh, some natural occurrences, such as a kind of self-stabilizing mechanism, that will reduce the global warming trend. Perfectly possible. From that perspective, you could say, just sit back and wait and see what happens. The problem with that argument is, I think, that all the scientific evidence that we have amassed, and remember we have amassed lots of different kinds of scientific evidence. It's not just one indicator like global warming in India. It's a recorded warming trend all over the world in the atmosphere, on the ground in the oceans. It's the melting of the glaciers. It's a whole lot of changes. The oceans are becoming more acidic because of the deposition of carbon dioxide in the, in the oceans. That's destroying uh, wildlife. That's destroying marine life. So we have lots and lots of different indicators. The trend is unmistakable and so far All the the studies of changing climates in the past have not yielded any insight into any such mechanism that could produce a rapid enough change. The problem is, the kind of mechanisms that produce varying climate, they work themselves out over not just centuries, but thousands of years. We are now talking about decades and a maximum of one century, and that time frame is too short to wait for a kind of a natural cycle to, to, in a sense, heal that process. That's why most scientists say it's far too risky to hope for that kind of solution. In fact, the uncertainty that scientists have detected in, in all these long-term models works both ways. You could say, okay, we, don't, we can't predict with certainty how far the warming trend will go. You could also say, well, perhaps if it's not three, four, or five degrees, what if it's seven, eight, nine degrees? What if there are feedback mechanisms that will tip us over a certain point of climate stability, the kind of runaway scenarios that some scientists are warning about. Do we want to take that risk? That's the key question you have to ask yourself. On most other issues, we won't take those risks, but here it seems we we are like rabbits facing the headlights.
0: Okay, more questions at the back?
2: Good evening. Um, so you spoke about power and the actors within the whole issue of climate change and environmental governance. But what about the whole issue of environmental governance in relation to other issues, like humanitarian issues, social issues, and trade, and um, economic issues? How much power does the issue in itself hold against other issues in the world?
1: So, so the question is, how much power is there in, in other systems of global governance? Um, um, that you want to employ here?
2: How much weight does environmental con- issues ah, have?
1: Relative to other, uh, yeah. Well, very good question. I, I suspect you're thinking about the WTO, for example, the World Trade Organization, or the IMF and the World Bank. Um, the good news is... It's a terrible academic habit to, to, to give answers in, in sort of sets of twos, right? Um, so the good news is... I'll come back to the bad news in a moment. Um, the good news is... Climate change has, at least since the mid 2000s, been mainstreamed in the sense that the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, to a lesser extent the IMF, are addressing climate impacts in their work. So there's much more impact assessment being carried out by donor organizations that try and minimize impacts on climate change, particularly, for example, investments in the energy sector. In, in trade, there's now talk about uh, liberalizing trade in environmental services and goods to facilitate technology transfer. Those are things that are happening, and that's a sign that climate change is no longer seen as just an isolated concern within the environmental community. It's now been seen as one of those cross-cutting issues that everyone has to address. So I would, I would be optimistic there about what these institutions can contribute Look at the business world. Look at the World Economic Forum, one of the major players in, in terms of getting different constituencies together to address those issues. The problem is other institutions, think the World Trade Organization, tend to be much more powerful in terms of directing economic flows. They have more power at their disposal. Why? Because they are better equipped institutions. The WTO has a legally binding dispute settlement mechanism. And when it enforces trade disciplines it primarily looks after the interests of free trade rather than um, getting carbon out of global trade chains. And we don't have an equivalent mechanism in the environmental field. We don't have any dispute settlement mechanism that looks after environmental issues and that could, for example, challenge rulings by the WTO. We don't have an impact assessment run by the UN Environment Programme that could challenge... Uh, aid and and finance flows initiated by multilateral development banks. So there is a kind of an imbalance in power. And those other regimes, the global economic regimes, they are predicated on a liberal idea, which is all built around the idea of facilitating trade, facilitating finance. And so that business of integrating climate concerns has to carry on. And I think we, we haven't seen the end of that process yet.
0: There's a hand up just behind... So behind the, the person I
6: asked before. Hi. I think I can follow your argument to the extent that sort of global treaties haven't worked and global diplomacy hasn't worked. And perhaps one implication of that is that local initiatives could work. But then I can think of a few, for example, in Ecuador, the Yusuni National Forest, and trying to keep the oil on the ground, or in Ethiopia, trying to finance the expansion of hydropower there through international climate finance that have failed miserably as well. Yeah. And I wonder what your perspective is there. What are some of the reasons why these local efforts um, are failing as well? And I think one of my thoughts on that is that some sort of principle of distributive justice between the causes and actors of climate change in the past versus those who are um, affected by it today is missing. But I would love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. Interesting case you mentioned there, Ecuador, where the, the government tried to get funding for keeping the oil in the ground. And in a way, that's what we're facing actually on a global level. We've got more oil, more I'll try to avoid feedback mechanism. We've got more oil, more coal than we can safely burn within the current climate budget. So that's exactly the challenge we need to find, uh, solve at local and regional levels, incentivizing people who have access to resources to keep it in the ground. In Ecuador's case, I'm not sure whether it's a familiar case, the Ecuadorian government ask international donors to pay the government to keep those resources in the ground. So in a way, you get paid. I'm not sure what to do now. You get paid for not using those resources. Shall I move over here? This works better. Can you hear me now? Is this on? Yeah, it's on? Great, thank you. I'll just ditch this. So, so, what didn't work is that we couldn't create a framework, a legal framework, with regard to Ecuador, where the countries that are giving money to this government would be assured that this government and successive governments would stick to the bargain. The key problem is, of course, um, how do you ensure that these promises that we pay for will be honored? not just now, but in 10, 15, 20 years. And this concerns a lot of pledges that, voluntary, that are being made voluntarily by various private actors, businesses. The whole map that I've, I've given you here, there are lots of pledges here to be found in this map. The problem is we cannot make these pledges stick. And so we need to think of creative solutions here. Uh, one option would be for people to deposit bonds to make a much stronger commitment that they would forfeit. Legal options would be to think about adjudication, uh, legal disputes resolution that would have more uh, power, that would have teeth. But again, we're back at that institutional question. In the environmental field, it's much more difficult to get these bargains to work in the long run. In trade and other areas, we have legalized those deals to to a much greater effect. But I have a feeling you have another answer to that.
6: Just a tiny follow-up, just in terms of an institutional framework, wouldn't the clean development mechanism have worked? I think they tried it like that in Ethiopia and failed. I don't know whether they tried that in Ecuador and failed.
1: Um, I'm not sure if the the CDM tried. The CDM is a mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol, and it basically channels northern funds into developing countries for projects that reduce emissions. It's seen as a way of both cutting down emissions and getting technology transfer and and investment going into developing and emerging economies. I'm not sure whether the CDM was used or approached in that case. The usual problems with the CDM are hugely bureaucratic, you need uh, almost a a foolproof project to, to, to get funding. And in this case, I would imagine, even if it was proposed, it probably didn't get very far. And much of the CDM money has gone into some of the... Most developed developing countries, China in particular, to some extent, also Mexico, Brazil, uh, India a little bit, and it hasn't really moved into other areas. So the CDM, it's one of those kind of okay, good start, but try again, we need to do more homework on it, it hasn't really mobilized a lot of the kind of action that we need to see there. Okay.
0: I've seen a hand up there on the balcony, and I'm s- s- trying to scan the audience and, and register other hands as well. But
7: um, we yeah, um, I was reading this article in a newspaper a couple of weeks ago that Oxford Street in London has now the highest level of pollutants in the world. Now, Welcome part- to London. Yes. <laughs> Some politicians have tried encouraging people riding bicycles. We have introduced congestion charges. Can we safely infer that no matter whichever way we look at it, um, uh, the the, uh, change in the climate is inevitable?
1: Do you have a positive spin to your question?
7: Uh, Well, yeah, because we have introduced two things here in London. And the temperature has increased, the pollution has increased, so nothing seems to be working as far as this city is concerned.
1: Yeah. I mean, you might have heard about the... Very good question. You might have heard about the the congestion charge experiment that has been successfully introduced in in London. It was introduced by the the predecessor of the current mayor, uh, called Livingston, and uh, the current mayor has continued it, although he reduced it in size. And initially, it brought down car journeys into London, the, the volume of traffic by, I think, over 20%, 25% in the first year or two. Massive result. The buses were, the bus routes were expanded, more buses on the roads, more people used buses and uh, got on, onto the, the bikes that you can see all over town. So huge success. But over time, traffic volumes have crept up again. People got used to paying a charge. I think it's now £10 to drive your car in central London. Uh, and you still haven't got a parking space anywhere around here. So I don't know what people do, but in, in the end, um, people have got used to it. And London is so expensive that £10 to drive your car, my God. If you can afford a, a garage, which is now going for 500000 in Kensington, uh, you know, £10 isn't so bad anyway. Um, so it's a classic example where initial gains in efficiency have been, so the effect of those gains has been worn out by a rise in overall levels of consumption and I think that poses the challenge which is that efficiency gains alone may not do it in this case. We may need either more innovative or more drastic measures to cut down on emission uh, and particularly consumption-based emissions. You may have heard of the, the rebound effect in the debate around energy and, and efficiency standards. It's a well-known uh, pattern in the history of energy efficiency that whenever you achieve a higher level of energy efficiency, the savings in energy are often more than overcompensated by the increase in demand for the more efficient uh, good that you are producing or the efficient technology. Just look at lighting. We've seen ever more efficient, energy efficient lighting but the amount of lighting that we install and the consumption of energy that this has caused has at least in the past Overcompensated the energy savings. And it's one of those very problematic paradoxes in our society that um, we haven't cracked. The alternative would be limit, absolute limits on consumption to keep, uh, together with energy efficiency, to keep emissions down. And that would be a drastic solution that within a democratic framework, think London, you know, banning people from driving, uh, altogether uh, would be very difficult, restricting uh, car journeys to only those people that live here. It would reinforce inequalities that uh, would cause all sorts of political problems. But I think you've hit a key problem here. This is a fairly liberal city which wants to do something on, on this problem. LZ wins sustainability awards over and over. We, you know, there are lots of good places here that work hard on this topic. Um, if we haven't cracked that nut. There's a question at to back.
7: Uh, You mentioned that uh, the key players are the states, NGOs, and the business organization in the triangle. But uh, what are your views on the consumer himself or an average individual himself? Like the lifestyle patterns that vary so drastically from... Let's say the United States and a country in sub-Saharan Africa. So, I mean, even though you can say India is a high emitter, the population of 1.25 billion pretty much, uh, even I mean, it doesn't. It gives a per capita. Uh, in, the emissions are much lower. So, yeah. uh, what are your views on if a change in lifestyle is uh, one way of, uh, like, rather than diplomacy itself and putting caps? How yeah. about a in lifestyle
1: I mean this is in, in many ways the missing piece that I didn't touch on which is bringing it down to the individual level um, I, I didn't, it's not my area of expertise changing lifestyles uh, perhaps, perhaps you need some, some other background psychology perhaps on that one but what's interesting about your point is um, the, the challenge: if, if everyone on this planet were to come up to levels of consumption that are not just at the highest level, like in North America, but at relatively high level, like in the Euro- in European Union, we know we would we would leave. I mean, we would leave the whole challenge completely unaddressed because we would completely lose control over emission levels. Just to illustrate that point, and we can come back to the question, the equity issue that's involved in here. The Grantham Research Institute, under Nick Stern, our famous economist who who produced the Stern report, has done some calculations on on how much we need to reduce emissions by about 2020, Um, sorry, no, by by 2050, if we want to control climate change. Now, the the experiment that I'm going to run now is a simple calculation, Uh, current levels Emission levels are um, measured in gigatons of CO two equivalent are around the fifty to I think around the fifty gigatons per year. By 2050, we need to bring global emissions down to around 20 gigatons, so a more than halving of emission levels. In 2050, so that's the year where we have to get to the level. There will be about 10 billion people on the planet. So you can do the math. That means everyone, if we have an equal carbon budget around the world, will have about two tons CO2 equivalent of emissions per year at their disposal. Two tons of CO2 in 2050. How many, just to use an example, how many flights from New York to L.A. and back a cross-U.S. flight and a return flight. How many of those flights at current technological levels can you make within a two-ton a year budget? How many would you guess? If you are two, you're not trying to become a consultant, right? Because you'd be flying on a weekly basis then. Two, any other offers? Ten? No? One? It's exactly one at current technological levels. That's the challenge, if we were to equitably distribute our carbon budget according to per capita consumption. Now, India is way below that level at the moment, and even in 2050, may not, Indian consumers may not be far above that level. The Chinese are already way above that level. Europeans and the North Americans have long been above those levels. So you're right. If we want to ensure more equitable distribution of our carbon budget, we need to bring current levels down dramatically in the north. That means, that that takes me back to my initial argument, the challenge is not just one of reducing emissions a little bit, it's one of getting rid of emissions pretty much out of all electricity, out of all of heating. The only area where there will be some emissions left or could be allowed to be left is probably in transport because it's very difficult to get carbon out of transport. Uh, They're talking about uh, solar-powered, battery-powered flights. Yep, Um, I I can see your brain working. Yeah, so you get off uh, onto the runway at Heathrow, step onto that a huge plane and you fly west with the sun in the afternoon and you see the sun sort of, you know, dipping uh, over there and suddenly the sun disappears and you're still in mid-flight and then you think hmm, who supplied these batteries? Are they from Sony? Will they these lithium batteries, will they just burst as they do in my laptop? Um, Will they be powerful enough? It's a scary thought. There, There may be a technological solution to that problem but most likely in transport we will need fossil fuels for a much longer time. So the challenge is getting rid of all the carbon from all the other forms of economic activity so that we have some left for probably transport. And that is the key challenge. Very difficult to get out of it. Uh, just a minor example, when Nick Stern was interviewed on the radio about exactly that issue, aren't you telling us, he was asked, aren't you telling us we, we have to stop consuming stuff? You know? I mean, isn't this the kind of typical environmentalist end-of-the-world scenario? He said... You know, no, it's, there are choices we can make. We can, for example, reduce our meat consumption because meat produces more carbon emissions. We can reduce meat consumption. The next day, the Daily Mail and all the other um, semi quality newspapers of this country um, produced headlines LSE professor Nick Stern wants us to stop eating meat shock horror no he didn't say that he said you can start cutting back you can reduce you can replace you can change, make those changes so that the entire agricultural system can be re-engineered in a different direction I'm not quite sure how, what life will look like when we have made those efforts but it will certainly be different we will have to change our patterns but we need to look, have a good and hard look at uh, the future there and that may be needed
0: Okay, there were a lot of hands up, so I'll start taking two questions together. There was one up there and then here at the, at the, at the front row. Hi, um, thank you for your presentation. My question is um, with regards to climate change refugees. How do you think the international asylum regime will evolve in the, in the next few years, the next few decades? Do you think that um, states will agree to, to modify the 1951 Geneva um, Refugee Convention? or Do you think we will need a new treaty? To, uh, to address that issue. Thank you very much. Okay, and let's take the, if, if you're okay with that, Robert, yeah. to have two questions, yes. and then you can answer them both. So, following up
4: on my earlier question from the lecture um, about efficiency standards, uh, wouldn't it be to the developed nation's interests also to adopt these? Uh, simply, I mean, even from a nationalistic level, because the United States could yeah. export the Clean Air Act, and you know, China would have to follow the costs, and it would mm raise U.S. exports, etc.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Maybe before you answer, I should maybe mention that there's a reception after this lecture in the senior dining room. For, so for those of you who, uh, I, I notice people start leaving, but those of you who do stay until the bitter end, um, they might be rewarded with free drinks. So, Robert, sorry good, for the good, interruption. I'll, I'll be quick then, because I think I'm, I'm the only thing between you and drinks now. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, two, two good questions. First one is of course, highly speculative. Um, climate refugees and, and whether we will create rights for climate refugees. I'm, I'm very doubtful about that. There, the, the one change that is starting to happen in the legal field is that at least lawyers are taking the notion of environment and climate stability as a human right more seriously. So there's a lot of legal scholarship around this idea that we as human beings have a right not just to uh, food and shelter and security, but also perhaps to a reasonably clean environment and a stable climate. So human rights doctrines and legal norms could begin to kick in there and could, for example, give individuals or groups in society um, the possibility to take legal action against those that violate those rights. So I'm, I'm coming to the refugee question in a moment. There's a bit of a roundabout answer. But the point is, if we can strengthen the human rights regime and embed climate change in that, we could, for example, start taking action, legal action against oil companies and against governments that refuse to sign up to climate treaties. And that could then begin to change the whole conversation about what are the rights of people who suffer from climate change. I don't think any government in the north will want to suddenly open the doors to climate refugees. They're already coming in many ways. If you look at what's happening in uh, Lampedusa in Italy and other parts of southern Europe, in Spain where North Africans and others are trying to get into Europe, they're already coming for, well, usually economic reasons. They want to better their lives, but increasingly that will be down to the kind of climate stresses we're going to experience. But I don't think governments will voluntarily agree to that. What we could see is much more legal action on the basis of a human rights norm and I think that's an interesting area to look at and then the question of efficiency standards, yes um, I think all developing countries will want to push efficiency standards for their own interest and China in particular is currently very keen to raise efficiency standards because its economic system is very energy inefficient they're wasting a lot of energy outdated factories um, outdated technologies and they are asking for help they would like us to transfer technology. India has asked for that on many occasions. There are mechanisms, tra- technology transfer mechanisms, being developed. The question is this. Do you foresee any positive response if we go to Capitol Hill, U.S. Congress, and ask them, hmm, how would you like to fund a technological upgrade of, ch- of Chinese and Indian uh, industrial plants, the kind of companies that are currently competing with you on a global market? Would you like to pay for a technology upgrade for that? Because that technology, if it's not freely available, somebody will have to pay for it. And that is increasingly becoming part of a competitive game, right?
4: Well, I mean, if from China's perspective, China's pushing for it, and from the US perspective, we probably prefer that China do it, but China pay for it. Yep. Um, yep. There may be some, A, middle ground, and B, uh, that could be. Maybe an, an interim solution. I'm sure that uh, if we make some sort of commitment to no further standards uh, uh, for China so long as they're making an official yeah. standard with yeah. no cap, then maybe they would agree to pay for um, these upgrades themselves, at least in the short
1: term. Yeah. yeah, yeah, good point. I think I have two solutions to offer, and they take us back to the, the issue of multilateral diplomacy. Two things we can use. One, we could create preferential access to technology through an international agreement but on condition that whoever wants access to technology and funding that comes with it needs to commit to certain standards that are verifiable and that are therefore uh, enforceable. So that could be a kind of a, a carrot and stick approach you offer something in exchange for something this is known in the literature as a club benefit. We create a small club, a technology-sharing club, and then we make membership dependent on willingness to commit. That could work with, with, with regard to China, though the scale of China's economy is on a different level. It would probably work better with smaller emerging or transition economies. The alternative would be to say we're going to create pools of funding So rather than an agreement, we simply create, and we have now created a a green climate fund, and we ask all countries to pay into it, so we even ask China to pay into it, and we then make it accessible to all, everyone, including those countries that pay in, but based on certain criteria. So again, you create an incentive for countries like China and others, both to contribute and to then draw down those resources. Again, the scale of the challenge in China may be just too big for any such fund to work. We haven't got a precedent for that. And, of course, remember, China's economic development was not paid for in any way by multilateral development banks. Um, It was not needed back in the 70s and 80s, was not requested by the Chinese government, and even today the Chinese are not expecting to be funded in whatever technological upgrades they're undertaking. Increasingly, the Chinese are pushing into uh, Western renewable energy markets. The reason why solar panels have become so cheap mm-hmm. is not because of European, well, partly because of European and North American uh, uh, production and, and demand. It's because of the cheap supply from China. They have just slashed the production costs. And many Californian and Danish solar panel producers are now going out of business because they're being undercut by the Chinese. They're going for scale, and that is going to make the biggest difference there. So I think there are some natural interests that we can use to work in that direction.
0: We might have time for another two questions. If, the, if you can be That's very quick, there's one up there, and then you can come in. If you try to keep the questions brief.
3: Um, I would like to go back to your argument. Uh, you mentioned that one of the three key dimensions uh, responsible for the fact that negotiations at the national level are not successful is economic uncertainty. Yeah. But I would like to, to, to uh, doubt this, because uh, if you look uh, at the EU, for instance, the European Union is probably the region of the world with the most uncertain economic situation and the weakest outlook. And nevertheless, the EU is continuing to be uh, uh, pushing strongest. Uh, and what's interesting, also, if you if you, if you look in Brussels, um, you have a very open discussion on where which direction to go to, what kind of level of ambition, ambition and so on. And uh, there, the mainstream is very, very uh, green, even in a sometimes um, unconditional way. So, does this, this not uh, yeah. question, uh, to some extent, your no. yeah. statement?
0: And then, if you take question here as well, was try to keep it brief.
2: Um, Hello again. So my question is, um, the states, because of the economic uncertainty you mentioned, they still give precedence to a lot of domestic issues or other um, international issues. The firms, uh, they still obviously give precedence to profits. And then there's the NGOs that give precedence to environmental issues, but then they're looked at as extremist terrorist organizations. How do we get over that hurdle um, to solve the problem?
1: Okay. good, thank you. and I'll keep my answers brief for a change. I I think you hit an interesting point there. The EU, the European Union, is the the one outlier here, perhaps, because in many ways what I've said here applies to the European Union in the same way. So why is the EU pushing? Okay, um, I'm I'm going to try and be as, as soft on the European Union here as possible. I think the EU has had an easy run in this field in the sense that The competition for leadership on climate change uh, was pretty weak. Developing countries want us to go further, of course. Think of the Maldives, island states. They want us to cut down emissions much faster. But they don't really matter in the negotiations because they haven't got the power, the clout. So the European Union is the only serious player that's pushing for this. But the European Union hasn't done enough, if you look at what's happening in the Kyoto Protocol and since in other areas, to really enact those painful reductions that didn't come its way anyway. The European Union has had an easy run. There hasn't been much competition for that claim of uh, your environmental leadership. So my suspicion is if there was a serious challenge from the U.S. or China, the European Union would find it much harder to go along with more demanding uh, targets, And we're seeing in the current economic climate, post-financial crisis, the EU is finding it much harder to advance its own targets and do more. So I, I'm a little bit skeptical about the EU's self-proclaimed leadership role. That's, that's the first thing to say. The second point is, well, how do you reposition this debate? And how do you get those that push for tougher action not to be derided as... You? Did you call them terrorists? Or you refer to them as terrorists? Or some other people do. OK, you're not. OK, good. I just want to clarify that. Well, yeah, um, I think that's, that's the problem in that debate. It's a very polarised debate. It's becoming less so. One way to get around this polarisation is to perhaps to point out all the people who are already on the side of those that want to change things in the interest of preventing climate change. And you can roll off a whole roster of global business leaders, Many of them, are actually, in the United States. If you look at the U.S. debate, I, I have a feeling that it's not just the environmental movement, it's increasingly multinational corporations that do business in Europe, in China, and elsewhere, that are on the side of those that want to see climate action. So one thing to do is to point out that there is a much broader coalition of people who want to do the right thing. But that still leaves the more radical fringe of the environmental movement that perhaps... Takes tougher measures. I think they're needed. I think it takes some people, um, including the the guy with the designer stubble, to you know make a a, a much more uh, dramatic case for global action. Because the sort of the seminar type conversation that we're having here may not always be sufficient to mobilise action. And many business leaders might not have acted had it not been for the kind of branding. Uh, the, 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 the tarnishing of the brand that has happened by the environmental movement. That pressure will be needed, and I think they're doing a good job. It, it may be down to us to perhaps engage in that debate in a, in a more sort of pluralistic way, to draw out the different positions that exist and show that it's a, a, a pluralistic field with many different positions. It's no longer the kind of black and white debate that used to exist. And I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic that if you look at that debate it is broadening out it's becoming much more broadly supported
0: Okay let's wrap it up thank you very much Robert for the interesting and engaging talk